Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, July the 20th, 2023. Uh, we've had lots of repeat guests on Keenon. But the most repetitive, at least in terms of his appearances, I think is my guest today. He's been on several times in the past talking about neoliberal e economics uh, in his book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, uh, talking about the shameful history of American healthcare with his uh, hidden history of American healthcare, talking about uh, Putin's Ukraine invasion and Bush's Iraq invasion as oil wars as part of his hidden history of monopolies. Um, these hidden histories, he's had nine of them out and the ninth is out right now. It's called The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living. Its author is Tom Hartman, America's leading progressive journalist, radio host, and he's with us today, as always, from Portland, Oregon. Tom, congratulations on this new book. Your, ha your, your hand must be hurting. How have you written nine books in this, in this series? Well, it's taken five years, but thank you, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me back on the program. It's an honor. Well, I can't resist. You've always got something interesting to say. So, I'm struck by the title of this book. Uh, it's already doing very well. It's the number one on, uh, on Amazon. Um, I'm struck by the fact that you didn't call it the hidden history of democracy, but the hidden history of American democracy, rediscovering humanity's ancient way of living. So what's the, the premise, uh, Tom, of this book? The, uh, the principal premise that uh, particularly that relates back to the subtitle is that democracy is the default decision-making mode for virtually all animal species, including humanity. And that throughout the 300,000 years of you know, fully modern humans on Earth, um, certainly there have been uh, you know, large eruptions of dictatorship and oligarchy, uh, or what we would call that, the equivalent of it today. But that the, the principle, the most common uh, way that people choose to uh, rule themselves has been through democracy and uh, that the uh, you know the western experiment the last thousand or arguably two thousand years of kings and popes and things has been really an aberration an anomaly and uh, you know I, I learned about this uh, with regard to animals first from the research the, the work that uh, Conrad and Roper were doing in the UK uh, where they were hypothesizing that, uh, you know, we had basically reinvented animal societies in the vision of kingdoms. In fact, we refer to the animal kingdom um, in, 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 in the context of European society. And the assumption was, you know, because we know that there are alpha animals, that the alpha animals must be the decision makers. And it turns out that the alpha animals actually uh, only have first choice of sexual partner, which, uh, you know, comports with Darwin's uh, idea of uh, natural selection, but they don't uh, rule the roots. They don't make decisions about other things. Uh, those are generally made democratically. There was a, a study that was done to test uh, Conrad and Roper's hypothesis by James Randerson with a, a herd of red deer in, in a forest that was owned by a university in the UK, the S University of Essex. And uh, there were three watering holes and they put cameras in the trees 
to track the deer to see how they made the decision about when do we stop grazing and go to the watering hole. I mean, this is a major decision. It's an important decision. You go too soon, not everybody gets enough nutrients. You go too late, the older and younger members of the community of the herd might end up dehydrated. So, you know, which can be life-threatening. So uh, what they found was that uh, random animals would start pointing their bodies at one of the three watering holes. And when 51% of the animals were pointing at one particular watering hole, the entire herd would then form around them and head off to that one watering hole. So I called up Conrad, uh, Ken Conrad and, and said, you know, <laughs> what happened when you published these results, you know, this, this information? And he was like, oh, it's amazing. He said, we heard from all kinds of disciplines in, in, in animal you know, biology, the the uh, ichthyologist, uh, you know, the, the, the fish guy said, uh, you know, this, this accounts for schooling behavior. Every motion of a fish is a vote. And, you know, I, I always thought schools of fish must be telepathic. But no, they're actually with every motion of their body, they're voting. And when 10, you know, when 51 percent of them move 10 degrees to the left, suddenly the whole school just goes 10 degrees to the left. It accounts for flocking behavior with birds. It, it, it accounts for, you know, balls of gnats in the air that will just go like this, you know. So it's and, redefining what we mean by the wisdom of the crowd. So I take your point, yeah. Tom. A, a couple of thoughts. Firstly, um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with some of the work of David Graeber in his analysis of... Yeah, uh, the dawn of everything. Um, societies of antiquity before the Greeks... So in a sense, Graeber shares or shared your opinion. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. And, and in fact, I quote Graeber in the book, in the chapter about native societies, Aboriginal societies. So, yeah, he, he was. A, so it fits very much with a lot of analy analysis that we've actually been doing on the show about the nature of uh, native societies. Um, so the original thought I would have is, are you suggesting then that authoritarianism of one kind or another is quote unquote unnatural and what exactly does that mean well it's an aberration it's it, it is it reduces the probability of success and viability for a society it makes societies more fragile more rigid and uh, in fact there was a piece published just last week in nature uh that you you may find fascinating andrew i know you 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 are interested in the, these kind of topics. Um, some really great archaeological work has been being done for the last couple of decades down in, in Central America. And uh, the title of the article was something like uh, Mesoamerican Democracy Was More Resilient or words to that effect. And what they found was that while, you know, we're all familiar with Aztecs and Mayans, you know, the, and the Incas, you know, the, the these uh, dynastic uh, dictatorial civilizations, in fact, they were really the, the exception, not the rule. And most of the communities that they were able to find when they, you know, ancient communities show no evidence of great wealth, no evidence of great poverty and clear evidence of democratic governance. And when they really dug into how long each one of these cities that they were discovering had survived and comparing the democratically operated ones to the authoritarianly operated ones, if there is such a word as authoritarianly, um, what they found was that the democratic uh, run, democratically run societies were much more resilient to everything from disease to uh, to uh, natural disasters to invasion from from hostile neighbors. 
Um, so yeah, the, the natural state of humanity is democracy, which is why we keep reverting to that. And like you pointed out, Graeber points out, you know, you go back 10, 20, 30,000 years. Peter Farb wrote about this in 1968 in his book, The Man's Rise to Civilization, where he went back and found the first contact accounts of Europeans and Native Americans from the 1600s. Right. So, so Tom, right. our, the, the political theorists in the Western tradition from Plato to Thomas More's Utopia, you're suggesting they were wrong to treat equality or egalitarian societies as unnatural. And I, I'm curious, yeah. are you equating or collapsing democracy and equality? Are they, in your mind, the same thing? Because you're presenting these natural societies is egalitarian rather than democratic. It's not as if the fish are voting. Right. No, the fish actually are voting. I mean, every, every motion of their body is a vote and uh, as are the birds and the gnats and everything else. And uh, I, I think it's important to, to draw some distinctions between the two, you know, your economic systems and political systems, but the two, uh, you know, have to uh, intersect because economic systems are created by political systems. We create a currency. We create the rules of commerce. We create the rules of what's a violation of the rules of commerce. We create systems to punish people who violate the rules of commerce um, and the economy and taxation and spending and everything else. So, um, uh, you know, I'm a fan of egalitarian societies, but I'm not a fan of, for example, communism as it played out in the Soviet Union. Uh, or as it, you know, as it plays out in Cuba right now. So uh, I, I think that there is, there is a lot to be said for democracy, for small d democracy, and that the problem that we have in the United States right now with a lack of egalitarianism, with this massive concentration of wealth, unlike, literally unlike we have ever seen in the history of the United States or in the history of the world, Arguably, I mean, you know, we, uh, uh, the the level of wealth of people like Jeff Bezos and and uh, Mark Zuckerberg is is beyond pharaonic. You know, it's beyond what the pharaohs had. Um, uh, that 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 is the result of the corruption of our political system. It's so let's go back. So l let's focus now, rather than on the history of either general species or humans. Let's focus on American democracy. In your view, in your hidden history of American democracy. Do you argue that the founding fathers made a mistake in voting, so to speak, for representative democracy versus the kind of direct democracy that was being articulated by the anti-federalists? No, uh, I, I think that representative democracy is a good idea. And, and, and in a large country, it's really the only thing that's viable. You know, the old Greek democracy where 6,001 people had to show up and you were chosen to serve by a basically, you know, a lottery. It was like you know, uh, jury duty, um, that would not be viable in a country like this. Although we have citizen assemblies that are working in Ireland and uh, South Korea and Canada and even some in America, which are based on that lottery system. Yeah. And 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 we have uh, uh, ballot initiatives also that are that are closer to a pure democracy. Um, I'm not saying that those are terrible ideas and they certainly work well um, in smaller communities. Um, I, I lived in, in uh, New England for many years in both New Hampshire and Vermont, where small towns still have, you know, annual uh, town, town meetings where basically everybody has a say. Um, and, and the entire, you know, whoever shows up, they all vote and decide, you know, the future of the town for another year. Um, you know, that, that works well, but that doesn't work well for 330 million people. So let me 
rephrase the question then, coming back to the foundations of American democracy, do you think that the founding fathers, and of course they were fathers, which might also be part of a critique, made an error in presenting, shall we say, European democracy or European constitutional traditions with the nativist traditions which they were replacing and in some ways wiping out, given your thesis in this new book? We, we are incredibly Eurocentric in our worldview and in our history. And, you know, so, you know, many of us learned in school uh, here in American public schools that, you know, American democracy was based on the Roman and Greek precepts, the, the Greek democracy and the Roman Republic. In fact, you know, there's not a lot in common, frankly. Uh, you know, we don't have 6,001 people that are selected by jury duty like the Greeks did. And, you know, yeah, we've got a Senate, but that's about it. With regard to Rome, we don't have an emperor. Um, and, uh, and citizenship is a very different thing in the United States. So, uh, I think that, so then if you blow that up, then people say, well, no, 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 it, it didn't come from the Greeks and Romans, you know, white Europeans. Instead, it came from John Locke and John Jacques Rousseau and, uh, and Thomas Hobbes and, and Montesquieu, you know, again, white Europeans. Turns out that in the, in the early 1700s, uh, the French trappers had penetrated deep into the, the eastern Midwest, you know, the, the Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, western New York, Michigan. And uh, the Huron tribe made friends with these French trappers and, and the French trappers brought along with them the French missionaries, the, the Jesuits, who set up house there. And they started publishing every year a, uh, in French um, an annual kind of state of their experience. So it was, you know, 60, 70, 80, in some cases, 100 pages every year. And these were major bestsellers in France from the 1820s through the 1880s, major bestsellers, and uh, created a huge demand. And, they, and what, they, what they were describing was the Huron who were run democratically, small d democratically. Their society was very democratic. And uh, a number of these uh, Huron... Uh, leaders, as it were, uh, learned French, became quite fluent in French. And there was a big fad in, in France at the time in the 1700s called salons, where wealthy women would invite, uh, you know, a, no, a notable guest to come and speak. Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin were frequent guests at French salons. And so uh, several of the these Huron natives, Native Americans came over to France and expounded at length about their concept of democracy and how democracy should work and critiqued you know, European society and, you know, French, the French kingdom. And that then one of those was attended by John Locke. Um, you know, uh, Montesquieu talks about them. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, writes about them. So what happened was these European Enlightenment philosophers that we think the founders were basing American democracy on just kind of came up with a brilliant idea one day because they were, you know, brilliant white Europeans. They actually got the idea from Native Americans. And so it kind of cycled through. And then, of course, there were Americans among the founders, most notably Jefferson, Adams and, and, uh, and uh, Franklin, who were, you know, like this with Native American communities, who knew Native American communities and, and in some cases even spoke their language. So I would assume that for you, the Jeffersonian model comes certainly closer than the Hamiltonian one. Well, I think there's, you know, we, we, uh, we <laughs> there's an old, cliche in history that, you know, we, we talk about America as a Jeffersonian nation, but we actually are, you know, we got Jefferson's rhetoric and Hamilton's country. 
Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for both, frankly. Hamilton's uh, report on manufacturers um, was, you know, really defined how to build an economy and, and built American, the American economy right up until the 1980s, you know, from the founding of the Republic. Um, and, and Jefferson's notion of uh, the only legitimate power being political power and, and for that matter, arguably economic power being power that is from the consent of the governed which uh, economically would mean unions and uh, politically would mean, you know, voters. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for that, too. T -t Tom, in your view, and you're, a, you're not a communist or perhaps even a socialist, but you're certainly quite critical of capitalism. Is capitalism compatible with democracy or is the incompatibility premised on the, the neoliberal character of contemporary capitalism? Let me reframe the question. Is, um, is soccer, football, uh, uh, compatible with entertainment? Um, if you had... Depends who's playing. And, and, and more important than that, it depends on what the rules are. If you had a set of rules that said that whichever team gave the largest amount of money to the National Football League got to have an extra three players on the field, um, then you could pretty much predict the outcome of every game and it would become boring and it would become incompatible. It, would be, it certainly wouldn't be very entertaining. Exactly. It would be incompatible with entertainment. So uh, to maintain compatibility with entertainment, you come up with a set of rules that, that, that are somewhat even socialist. I mean, you know, the team that does the worst every year gets first choice of draft picks in the following year. Um, uh, you know, which is very socialist. Ironically enough, uh, American professional sports is more socialist than European professional sports. Yeah, I know, I know. And so my point is that, that uh, you know, you asked about the compatibility of, the, of uh, our free enterprise uh, or capitalist uh, economic system with democracy. Um, if, the, if capitalism is run with rules that are designed to protect democracy, and to protect capitalism from itself, from its own excesses, then it can work quite well. Uh, but when, when you break down those rules, like in 1983, when Ronald Reagan officially stopped the United States from enforcing the antitrust laws, uh, you and I talked about this in my book on monopolies. You know, it, it changed the way capitalism runs and, and not to the better, not to, not to, the, you know, to the detriment of both capitalism and democracy. Uh, as one example, another, you know, when when Reagan cut the top income tax rate from 74 percent down to 25 percent, again, you know, it, it hurt both democracy and capitalism and, and, and it produced this massive uh, bubble of wealth that we're experiencing right now. Which so is, 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 is the hidden history of Tom Hartman's hidden history of American democracy a return to perhaps the, the FDR politics of the New Deal? I mean, what model should or can we go back to FDR certainly wasn't a socialist, but he revised the rules of capitalism. What kind of rules do we need to maintain American democracy? You know, if you uh, start with the assumption that democratic systems are the most resilient, and therefore, if you're going to be doing policy, the policies that you choose should be the policies that the majority, the significant majority of people are in favor of, are supportive of, then I would say, as much as I'm a fan of FDR, I would say probably, you know, the Scandinavian model would be uh, probably a better example. Um, you know, the vast majority of Americans would like to have a national health care system that is not expensive and that does provide for everybody. 
Um, you know, Canada has that. Most European countries have that, the Scandinavian countries in particular. Um, uh, same thing with college education. We know from the, our experience with the GI Bill that for every dollar the federal government invested in, in college education for young men coming back from World War II, we got a $7 return uh, in additional taxes we wouldn't have had because they earned more money. Plus, it stimulated the country. Um, so it's a good thing, you know, and the majority of people would like to have free education and a high quality primary education system, which has been, you know, steadily eroded under 40 years of Reaganism. Um, so, you know, Social Security, Medicare, these these kinds of programs that that are just, you know, normal and widespread unionization, normal and widely accepted, uh, you know, across much, if not most of Europe and most other democracies. Um, are the the things that I think we need to put into place here in the United right. States? Tom, you you're, you're you're quite outspoken on a lot of this stuff. Understandably, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you say. You talk about why billionaire. You, uh, you had a piece in the Milwaukee Independent suggesting why billionaire funders of GOP politicians uh, worship monsters if they were heroes. Profoundly undemocratic. I, I think the people on the right that might say the same about Soros. Can one have a society of billionaires? whether they're Soros or on the right, and maintain democracy? I think it's very difficult. Uh, the biggest challenge, of course, is the Supreme Court having legalized political bribery in, in 76 with the Buckley decision, 78 with Bilotti, and, and 2010 with Citizens United. And uh, that allowing billionaires to own politicians and to buy political systems, uh, that now we're back to, you know, if one of the NFL teams bribed the NFL and could have three extra players on the field, what would the outcome be? I mean, you know, it's, it's just fundamentally destructive to, to our nation. But in a way, this three extra players, you're falling into that trap, too. You're suggesting in another piece that um, America needs three additional states that would save American democracy. Presumably, some of your critics might say, because that would tilt the balance your way? No, not really. Uh, right now, we have a 50-50 Senate, 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, and the Democrats in the Senate represent 41 million more people than do the Republicans. That is not small-D Democratic. Uh, that, is, that is a terrible imbalance. We have had a series of times in the past where presidents have added states purely because they wanted more senators to, to, to balance the Senate, as it were. Abraham Lincoln needed two new senators. At the time, it took 125,000 people in a territory to qualify for statehood. He made Nevada a state with 7,000 citizens, you know, broke his own rules because he needed two Republican senators. Ulysses S. Grant did the same thing with Colorado. It, it, it had, you know, fewer than 30,000 people, and but he made it a state. Benjamin Harrison did this with the Dakota territories, which in aggregate had enough people to qualify as a single state. He split it into two states. These were three Republican presidents who got four states and eight Republican senators in, and they were right up front telling the American people, undo well, it. was a very different Republican Party in the 19th century to today. So which three states do you think America needs to make it more democratic? Well, I think that uh, obviously Washington, D.C. should be a state. It has a, a larger population. Yeah, and we had Christian Cooper on the show, the, 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 the Central Park birder, who made a very good case for that. Yeah, um, I would say that Puerto Rico, I mean, Puerto Ricans are United States citizens. You've got four or five million people there who have U.S. passports, um, and yet they can't vote in U.S. elections. They're affected by our, the decisions that Congress makes. Um, they should be a state. And if you really wanted to push it, 
Um, you've got the U.S. Virgin Islands, which, again, have a population similar to Wyoming and Vermont. And then if you really wanted to push it to eight uh, senators, four states, you could even go to the Pacific Islands, you know, Guam and the Solomon Islands. And, and I'm not sure what they all are, the names of all of them. But in aggregate, they're, they have a larger population than Vermont. You had an interesting piece also recently comparing, we've done a lot of shows on this, comparing the current state authoritarian threats to democracy in America and in Russia, how are they comparable? And, and, and do they reflect, again, the inequality, uh, the economic inequality, which you suggest is undermining American democracy? They do. I mean, Russia is a gangster state. It's, it's uh, an oligarchy. And, uh, you know, Putin is the chief oligarch. And, uh, and, and Trump just in the last week has said that that's exactly what he's going to do here in the United States. He's, he's, he's going to create a strongman government and, uh, you know, which is incompatible with democracy. But it's uh, uh, sadly, it's something that a, a number of Republicans seem to want. But I don't think that it's a, it's a good thing for this country, frankly, at all. The term existential threats used all the time in terms of democracy, Tom. If Trump is reelected, does that represent an existential threat? Will he really, do you think, as some people suggest, dismantle the, the institutions, particularly the legal and constitutional institutions? I absolutely believe so. And, and the people who he has said he will surround himself with have, have said so, have as much as said so, that they're going to take down the deep state. They're going to destroy the agencies of the government. They're going to consolidate power in the White House. Uh, you know, which is exactly what Putin did when he got control of the Russian democracy. It was only a democracy for a few years, but they had a democracy for a while. Finally, um, there are lots of ways you can fight this. I mean, it goes without saying that we should vote. You, you're quite critical of no labels. We had Nancy Jacobson, the head of no labels on the show. You don't think that um, they're helpful to democracy. I'm curious why and what you think of organizations like braver angels designed to bring people together i was at the braver angels convention a couple of weeks ago in gettysburg is this the wrong way of going about reforming american democracy imagining new political parties no labels or organizations like braver angels which bring people of different political persuasions together I'm all in favor of bringing people of different political persuasions together. The, the simple reality, and the people who run No Labels know this, and if they pretend not to, they're simply deceiving you, is that when you have first-past-the-post winner-take-all elections, which is what we have here in the United States, we're one of seven democracies that does this. Pretty much everybody else adopted John Stuart Mill's proposal in, in 1861 and on liberty of proportional representation. You know, if, you're, if your party gets 22% of the vote, you get 22% of the seats in parliament. Here in the United States, once you get 51%, the 49% are essentially disenfranchised. So once you have first past the post winner take all elections, it always creates a two-party system, a two-party political system, always. And any party that arises in a two-party system will always damage the party that it is philosophically most closely aligned with. And, you know, no labels talking about putting Joe Manchin out as a, as a presidential candidate is, you know, just a, clearly an attempt to throw the next election to, to the Republicans. Well, especially since Ma Manchin is a Republican anyway. Yeah, amen. <laughs> but he pretend, you know, he's a, he's a Republican in drag. He's pretending to be a Democrat. Yeah, I don't like to think of Joe Manchin in drag. Um, Tom, uh, finally, we can't all, for better or worse, become fish or other kinds of species. So how do we 
reform American democracy? What are the, the concrete things we can do in the next few years to protect ourselves against the kind of existential threats that you warn about on your show, in your books, and in this conversation? I think, number one, we need to make voting a right. We are the only advanced democracy in the world that doesn't uh, consider voting to be a right. And therefore, uh, you know, you have a number of governors who are going out of their way to make it very, very difficult to, for particular people to vote. Uh, I, what does that mean? You mean a response? You mean like in Australia where you're required to vote? No, I'm not. I'm not saying mandatory, but I'm saying that, for example, in, in, in most countries where voting is a right, um, you know, when you're born, you go on the rolls as a citizen of the country. And in, and in most cases, you're enrolled in the national health care system. And when you turn 18, you simply show up and vote. I mean, you know, it's you're a citizen. There's no question. There's you don't have to register. You, there's no song and dance. You don't have to jump through any hoops. Uh, you just go vote. Um, and if voting was a right, then a seven hour line to vote would be considered an impediment of that right and would be outlawed. Um, if voting was a right, then purging, you know, uh, 170,000 people off the voting rolls like Brian Kemp did in Georgia just before the last election, um, most of whom were actually, you know, had every right to vote. They just didn't return a postcard uh, that they thought was junk mail, um, which, by the way, was legalized by the Supreme Court in 2018, this practice, and has now accounted for probably eight or nine million Americans being purged off voting rolls in red states, almost all of them in the cities, the, the blue cities in these red states, then that would not be legal. So I think, number one, we need to make uh, voting a right. And number two, we need to get money out of politics. We need to reverse Citizens United. I think those two things will take us 70 percent of the way down the road toward a, toward a better America. 